right. So we are starting a series today on the grace of God. And then uh, February, we're going to be doing a series on grace and the family. Then we're going to study the book of Philippians for a few months this year, later on. And then we're in the fall, we're going to do a series on grace and the church, meeting each other. And then eventually we're going to cap off the year by doing a series on grace and other people, meaning our community. And so I've been asked by a few of you, like, why grace? Why are we doing a series on grace? And i got to tell you, folks, that's hard for me to answer. It's like, well, why not? I mean, it's like an atheist asking me, why God? You know, it's like, well, he exists, he's real, he saved my soul, that's why God. I mean, and, and so when a Christian asks me, why grace? Honestly, it's like an atheist asking me, why God? Because the reality is, is that grace is the core of who God is. Out of his grace flows all of his attributes. I mean, his grace, as we're going to see, is what amazes us, as the hymn writer says. The Reformation people were so enamored with God's grace that they called the age that we're living in right now the covenant of grace. The dispensationalists call it the, the, the age of grace that we're in. I mean, every great theologian has written a book on grace, whether it was Augustine or, or Newton or Bunyan or Moody or Spurgeon. I mean, they, they all had something profound to say about grace. And so as we look into going into 50 years next year as a church, celebrating our 50-year anniversary, it just hit me in one of my more alone moments. My gosh, how dare we go into celebrating 50 years without cementing God's grace in our lives? And so I'm telling you, my only goal throughout this whole next year is that for those of you who don't get His grace, that you'll get it. And then for those of you who, who think you get it, but you really don't and, and need to get it more, that we'll get it more. That all of us will get to the end of this year and be somehow changed, if not blown away, by His grace. Over my study break, I was uh, reading a book by Sinclair Ferguson. Ferguson is a, uh, used to be a professor at Westminster Seminary. He's now a pastor in South Carolina, just a, a, a wonderfully educated man, strong Christian man. His book is called By Grace Alone. It's brand new. Listen to what he says in the introduction to his book about why grace. He says, being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. It is a litmus test on how firm and real our grasp of the Christian gospel is and how close our walk with Jesus Christ is. The growing Christian finds that the grace of God astonishes and amazes. A chief reason for the weakness of the Christian church in the West, for the poverty of our witness, and for the lack of vitality in our worship probably lies here. We sing about amazing grace, we speak about amazing grace, but far too often it has ceased to amaze us. Tasting the power of the grace of God can refresh the inner sanctuaries of our being and banish the spiritual lethargy and indifference that take God's goodness and love for granted. That's why grace. Because I'm convinced, folks, as your pastor, that it's when you and I bathe ourselves in the grace of God, undergirded by His truth, followed up by obedience, I mean, all of that's involved too, but the core is grace, that you're going to find yourselves being ignited in your spiritual life. And so I can only hope that happens to you as we go through the next few months and even year together. Now, um, believe it or not, after having said all of that about grace, today is going to be a really weird and different message because I called it the prelude or, or a prelude to grace. Because you see, you have to understand something about ourselves and how fallen and how wired we are in our sin in order to really get grace. So today won't be a downer message. It's going to be a little bit of a sobering message, but it's going to set us up as only a good friend can for our understanding of grace over the next few weeks. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, I thank you 
that in history past you've come to us in the man Jesus Christ who also revealed himself as God in the flesh and, and he came, he came to us full of grace and truth. And so Lord, undergirded by your truth, we want to explore what this grace is that is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, at the very least, every one of us are in some way intrigued, interested, curious about what your grace can mean in our lives. And Lord, maybe even for some of us veteran Christians, we've been around the block so many times that we've forgotten what the, it means to be amazed and enamored with your grace. God, I pray the prayer of C.S. Lewis, who once prayed that you would surprise us with joy. And I pray, God, that you might take some of us by surprise this year with a joy that stems from your grace that only you can give. And Lord, may you use us in the process. So we commit our time to you this morning now and our lives as well. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Well, as I kind of hinted to you before I prayed, uh, life tends to work this way, and that is that in order to get the good news of something, you got to understand the bad news. Give me a head nod that we all understand that, right? In order to get the good news, you got to understand the bad news. Without any bad news, there is no such thing as good news. So if somebody says, good news, you don't have cancer, that is predicated on the bad news that they had to do a biopsy of something that you thought was cancer, right? Or if somebody says, good news, you got the job promotion, that's predicated on the bad news that you're stuck in a job you don't like and it's great that you got the promotion. Or if somebody says, good news, the Cleveland Browns were winning the Super Bowl this year, <laughs> then that might be predicated on the bad news that the Browns have never gone to a Super Bowl, they don't even want a Super Bowl. And, and they're not going to the Super Bowl this year, but someday in the future they will. And so we all understand that when it comes to good news and bad news, you got to take both and understand both, or the good news means nothing. And so here's the deal, folks. When it comes to God's grace, especially in His grace as seen in how you and I relate to Him, what you need to know is that you're never going to get the good news of it, and you surely won't experience it until you understand the why of why we need His grace, as well as the what that His grace is being applied to, in other words, our sin. And, and so look up here on the screen. Here's a core understanding that you need to know about grace. It's the first thing we need to cement here in our look at grace as it relates to God, and that's this, and that is that grace exists primarily when there is need, sin, and or inferiority. I know that's a mouthful, but you've got to latch on to this this morning. Grace exists primarily when there is a need, sin, or inferiority. And so track the progression of this logic. Grace, as many of you know, is defined as unmerited favor. That's the theological definition of grace, unmerited favor. Simply put, it's when somebody does something for you that is totally undeserved, something positive that you couldn't earn or merit on your own. That's grace. And so by its very definition, without an undeserving participant needing some kind of favor, think about it, <clears throat> there is no grace. In other words, without some kind of hurdle that you can't jump on your own, or a mountain that you can't climb on your own, or a debt that you can't pay on your own, or as we're going to see today, even a sin that you can't atone for on your own, then grace really has no place. Because without a need, sin, or inferiority, then on a human level, we don't know how grace would fit in. Because grace has to have some kind of need in the receiver for it to be grace. And all I know is that we all know this about grace. If you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning, and I said, share with me a time, even in the midst of all of your messiness of your life, where you've experienced grace, even on a small level, you'd tell me about a time. 
You tell me about a time that somebody cut you slack or somebody forgave you when you didn't need forgiveness or some other mode of grace. And look closely, it all has this in common, and that is that it existed precisely because you had a need, a sin, or an inferiority, and that's what made grace grace. As my friend Larry Crabb would say, grace is looking bad in the presence of love. That's grace. When you can look your worst and somebody would love you anyways, that's grace. And one of the cool things about grace, folks, is that the Bible even says that the greater than the sin in our life or the greater the need, then the greater we're going to actually appreciate the grace. That's a biblical truism you don't want to miss. Look at how Paul would put it in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Interesting phrase, where sin increased. In other words, the greater the sinner, the more that person is going to be enamored and blown away by God's grace. And what Paul would go on to argue is that this doesn't mean that we should sin even more so that God's grace might be be revealed even more. No, he doesn't mean that. It simply means that to the degree that you and I understand and recognize the extent and depth of our own sin is to the degree that we're going to be blown away by his awesome grace as we relate to him in and through Christ. And so that's what I want to do here this morning. I want to explore and unpack a little bit of our sin so that we might be set up in the coming weeks and even by the end of today to really get his grace that's been shown to you and me. So, if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Next week, we're going to look at verses 8, 9, and 10 as we get to the really positive nature of grace. But again, in order for Paul to get to the positive nature in verses 8 through 10, he first needs to set us up with the bad news in verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning there, Ephesians 2, I want you to notice with me three things that this passage tells us about our sin and God's grace. And the first thing is this, and that is that sin extends beyond our bad behavior. It is actually rooted in our nature. Man, hear this today if you don't hear anything else. Sin is, extends beyond our bad behavior. In other words, it's more than just the bad things we do. We all have that. It's actually rooted in our nature. And so look with me at how the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 tell us this. This is very revealing. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if you've ever heard me speak before, most of you have, you know that quite often when I experience a passage like this that has a lot of detail to it, I'll say, you know what, that's just too much for us to understand in one message. But I'm not going to do that today. I actually want us to focus right now on these three verses and unpack this in some detail in understanding what it's really saying about you and me in our natural selves and why we so desperately need His grace. And you'll notice for sake of simplicity that those three verses use two very simple word pictures, two very simple life examples in describing our sin. It says that we walk in sin. Do you see that there? And then we live in sin. 
We walk in sin, and then we live in sin. Notice verse 2. It says, in which you formerly walked, meaning before you knew Christ. It, It tells us three ways that human beings walk in sin. First, it says that we do so by following the course of this world. You see that there in verse 2? Following the course of this world. This is an interesting phrase. It simply means the value system of the world in rebellion to God. It's the value system of our world that charts its own course, a course that gets lots of unsuspecting people on board. So it's referring to a pattern of sin that gets ingrained in any particular culture, and then everybody just follows along without even realizing how bad it really is. And what you simply need to know, folks, is that every historical culture and even every culture alive today has living examples of what it means to follow the course of this world. I know this is a difficult issue to talk about, but uh, five years ago when I was doing an in-depth study on grace, again, I've always been enamored by God's grace, I ran across an article that was analyzing what was going on in Hollywood at that time and even still now today. And one of the things that this article noted is that out of wedlock pregnancies before 2005 and before this decade used to be like a really embarrassing, if not shameful thing. And yet now out of wedlock pregnancies have become not only normative, but something that people will talk about in a very non-embarrassing way. The article pointed out that that 20 years ago when Madonna had an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, it was almost like, ooh, you know, everybody was blown away by that, and people were discussing whether that's good or whether that's bad, and it was really kind of a shameful thing. But that by 2005, celebrity after celebrity were having kids before they got married and not thinking it was any big deal. So this article cites Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes, Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin, Jennifer Garner and Ben Affleck, Heidi Klum and Seal, and on and on. They call it Hollywood's baby before marriage fad. And it was noting that this is happening in Hollywood. And then lest you think that this is just something that happens in Hollywood, the article further noted that it was actually becoming an entrenched thing in culture as a result. In fact, it cited that in the year 2004, there were 1.5 million, 1.5 million babies born before people got married. Does that blow you away? That blew me away a little bit. It's become so common to have a baby before you get married that there were 1.5 million of them born in 2005 alone. And this is something that's just become ingrained in culture. Never mind the fact that study after study has shown that marriages like this are more likely to dissolve. And never mind the fact that studies have shown that the kids are going to struggle more than other kids would. People are still doing it. As the article wrapped up, and I found this very revealing, it says the rules for dating and marriage have completely changed over the past 20 years in Hollywood and elsewhere. Shotgun weddings are a relic. And I thought, whoa. And folks, when I read that, I thought to myself, this is exactly what Ephesians 2 warned us about 2,000 years ago. It's simply the course of this world. It's our culture doing something that you and I know the Bible says is not right, and yet we jump on board anyways. Why? Because everybody's doing it. It's rather adolescent in nature because in high school we were taught not to do things like that, and yet we experienced peer pressure in which people said, come on, everybody's doing it, it won't hurt you. And yet now as adults we find ourselves doing the same things. We follow the course of the world. And what you simply need to see is that it reveals our need for grace. 
that whenever you get caught up in following the course of this world, the Bible's simply saying, there it is. By nature, you need God's grace. Just own it and, and, and move toward his grace. And then notice a second way that the Bible says here that we walk in our sin, and that is it says we follow the prince of the power of the air. Do you see that there? Follow the prince of the power of the air. What's that? Well, it's simply referring to the fact that there is a power and influence behind our sin, tempting and encouraging us to do things that we know are wrong, and the Bible calls this the evil one or Satan. It's simply personal evil that resides in this world, and it influences us as well, even good-hearted and well-meaning people. And what does it tempt us to do? What does it cause us to be? Simply what it calls sons, and we add daughters, of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Now, this is a very interesting phrase, that phrase, sons of disobedience. Notice that it's not saying that we are all sons and daughters of God who just happen to be disobedient once in a while, kind of like our own kids. If you have kids, you know that they're your sons and they're your daughters. You love them no matter what, and yet they're going to blow it sometimes and be rather disobedient. That's not what it's saying about you and I here. It's saying that before we knew Christ, we were actually sons and daughters of a fictitious father called disobedience. And like all good children who follow their fathers, we were following this fictitious father disobedience in doing the things that were against God's will and purpose for our lives. In other words, it's insinuating that try as hard as we might to do the good, we're still going to mess up, we're still going to do things that we know are not right, that we're ashamed of disobedient things. So it's the business person who has a pretty good track record but then gets caught doctoring expense reports. It's a politician who's been good for 20 years and then gets caught lying to his constituents or to a federal court. Or it's a preacher who's been preaching the Bible faithfully for 20 or 30 years. It gets caught in an adulterous or sexual relationship. We all know the stories. They abound in our culture today. Nobody seems to be immune to this idea of disobedience and falling in our lives. And again, it's just setting us up for grace. It's saying, please recognize the state of your soul, the composition of your life, so that you might be that much more enamored when you finally get his grace. So it's saying that we walk in a sinful state. That's what Ephesians 2 is making clear. But it's not done there. Notice that it says a second way that you and I uh, experience sin, and that is we don't just walk in it, but it says there in verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Do you see that there? We, we actually lived in a sinful way. It says in the passions of our flesh, or as one author says, the longings of a self-centered life. This simply means that you and I allow our internal passions and urges, unchecked and unregulated, to seek after pleasure and purpose at the cost of knowing God, and that we do that especially before knowing Christ on a regular basis. Can you relate to that? Can you relate at all to having urges and passions inside of you in which you know that it's wrong to go down that road, but it feels so good, and so you're going to do it anyways, even at the cost of knowing God? That's all Ephesians 2 is saying here. And it reveals your need for grace. You know, again, going back to that living together and having sex together before marriage thing, I mean, I've been doing this one for 30 years now as a Christian, 20 years as a pastor, and I can't tell you how many times a young couple will come to me and, for marriage, and, I, and I'll ask them if they're living together or sleeping together, and 80% of the time the answer is yes, and I'll say, well, you know, that's not right. And, and the honest ones will eventually say to me, well, Jamie, a answer me this. How, how can something that feels so good be so wrong? Right? We've all heard that. 
How can something that feels so good be so wrong? And years ago, it just seemed so logical to me. Well, the answer to that one is like a duh. Have you ever tried cocaine? Have you ever tried heroin? I mean, I've not tried either, and yet I'm told that if you try those, they're going to feel really good. In fact, there's a great chance you might become addicted to them. They feel so good. But when you wake up later, you realize how wrong they are. So there's a great example of something that we all know feels really good, like addictive substances, but they're wrong in the end. And the Bible's chock full of those things. That God says that there are things that we do that feel good at the time, that's that passions and urges inside of us, but they're harmful to our soul at the end of the day. That marriage is made for a monogamous relationship, a lifelong commitment, till death do you part. And until you say your I do, you don't consummate the act. And if you do, even though it feels good, you're revealing your need for grace. You're revealing the fact that you are fallen and that you are walking and living in a state of sin that needs God's grace. And then interesting, it says that we even carry out the desires of the body and the mind. You see that there in verse 3? We carry out the desires of the mind. What commentators point out is that this simply referring to the fact that sin goes so deep into our personhood that we have become masters at justifying it in our minds, making excuses for it mentally and defending it any way that we can. And some of you are saying, well, I don't do that. And all I know is that if you and I were alone having a cup of coffee today, I'd show you that you do. I hope you can see that. I can't tell you how many times I heard a Christian say, well, everybody tells white lies. It's not so bad. I'm like, where in the Bible is there a difference between a white lie and a black lie or something like that? Lying is lying. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Or how about I've heard men say this, well, so what did I lost it verbally with my wife and called her things that I shouldn't call? I didn't hit her. I think, my gosh, listen to yourself. Listen to yourself talk. Or how about the businessman who says, you know what? It's not the government's money anyways. I mean, it's my money. I worked hard for it. So what if I cheat on my income taxes? Well, never mind the fact that Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Do you see how we justify things in our mind? We use defenses all the time to try to cover up the fact that the Bible simply says, just admit it. You walk in sin. You live in sin. We're going to get to grace in a minute, but own your sin initially. Because you see, folks, when you add all this up, I know it's hard to talk about. It really adds up to something that's very profound in our understanding of ourselves. The course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, sons and daughters of disobedience, passions of our flesh, desires of our body and mind. Don't miss where all of this is leading us. It gives us kind of the, the knockout punch there in verse 3 when it says that we do all of this. It's a little phrase. You don't want to miss this. By nature. It says that as a result of all of this, we do all of this stuff by nature. That's a very, very key phrase right there. As many of you know, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and so that's the Greek word phusis, which simply means natural disposition. Simply put, it means our default state. It's saying that when we are left alone to our own devices, to God not intervening in our lives, which we're going to see in a minute he has, but when he, if we were left alone where he hasn't, then our default state would be by nature sinful people. It's sobering, but it's real. I, I do my sermons on Microsoft Word, and uh, I've gotten pretty proficient at Microsoft Word. I've been using it for about, what, 15 years now. 
And one of the commands I love in Microsoft Word is that if I've been doing all this formatting in my sermon with like bold and underlined and colors and, 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 and italics and things like that, and I don't like how it looks, if you highlight the paragraph and then hit control space bar, do you know what it does? It takes everything back to the normal default state. Try it sometime. Highlight your paragraph, hit control space bar, it works on a PC or even a Mac, and voila, all the formatting changes you've done will go back to basically Times New Roman 12 point without anything to it. It's a default command. And what Ephesians chapter 2 is telling you and me here is that if God was not involved in the picture, if he pushed control space bar, then our default state would be by nature sinful and separated people from him. And so the point is clear, guys. You don't want to miss this. It's telling us that sin is not just the sum then of our mistakes and behaviors. It's not just some little oops in our lives. We need to get beyond that in our understanding. It's much deeper than that. It goes to the core of our nature. The Bible says that you and I just don't do bad things every now and then, but that there's a part of us that is so fallen, that is so at core of our personhood, that it's in need of massive grace. Again, I love how Ferguson says it in his little book here. He says, we do not become sinners by committing specific acts of sin. We commit specific acts of sin because we are sinners. And that's a subtle difference. I like how he goes on to say it even further. He says that when you sin in your life, that's not an aberration, as in some type of oops. It's a revelation of what's really in your heart. Isn't that a different way of looking at it? It's important you see it this way, because the Bible describes our lives this way. And when you get this, now you're primed to see how amazing God has been to you in his grace in Christ Jesus. So what is sin at the end of the day? My brother called me about, oh, probably eight, nine years ago after just becoming a Christian, and he asked me on the phone, he said, Jamie, just give me a good definition of sin. I said, well, let's go to the Bible. It gives a better definition than I could. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Here's a good definition of sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's what the Bible says. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, any activity, motive, any emotion, any thought that you and I have that does not stem from active faith, trust, and dependence on God is sin. Now do you see how it goes to the core of our nature? It's much deeper than most any of us would ever realize. Our sin goes to the core of who we are. And that is why we need His grace. And this leads us to point two. And if you thought point one was sobering, hang on to your pew. This is more sobering, but we're going to end on a glorious note. Here's point two, and that is that sin separates everyone from God and eventually, and many of you know this, leading to eternal separation if it is not dealt with, and I would add in Christ. The, the, the Bible is going to tell us right here that sin separates every one of us from God. That's why it's so important. And eventually, it can separate us eternally if we do not find him in his grace in Christ. And so notice two things I'm saying to you here. First, that everyone is affected by sin. Look at verse 3 again. It couldn't be more clear. It says, among whom we all once lived. Focus on that little phrase, whom we all. We all. Every one of us, every single person on this planet has been affected personally and deeply by sin. And again, I know how some of us think, because I think the same way. You think, well, come on, Jamie. Yeah, everybody's been affected by sin, but not in the same way. I mean, there's obviously a big difference between Howard Stern and Billy Graham, right? 
And there is. I mean, Howard Stern is about as decadent as you can get in today's culture. Billy Graham arguably is about as godly as you could get. Amen? And you and I are probably somewhere in between. But you know what's fascinating? Is that even a Billy Graham, I don't know if you caught his interview at the age of what, like 93 on Greta the other day, even Billy Graham admits at the age of 93 that he is a sinner in need of grace. Isn't that incredible? I mean, the guy has arguably lived a more godly life than you and I will ever attain to, and yet he knows what's in here. And so he obviously he honestly doesn't look at a Howard Stern and say, what a sinner, I'm glad I'm not like him. I mean, he looks at Howard Stern and he prays for him. And he says, you know what, there but for the grace of God go I. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you that it's still alive in me at the age of 93. I can't wait to be with you. See, the Bible makes it clear that all of us are fallen. All of us need His grace. Because the primary consequence, if we don't get His grace, is separation from God, both here and now, as well as eternally. You know, if you're not dialed into this yet, I want you to look uh, again here at Ephesians 2, and this time at verses 1 and 5, and notice how it describes humanity before they find grace. This is very revealing. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 5. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then in verse 5, it says it again, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That word dead is probably the most important word in the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2. It's a Greek word, again, that we are very common with, or familiar with. It's the Greek word nekros, where we get our English word necrosis from, which simply means the death of bodily tissue. And the original Greek language that, this, that the New Testament was written in, this word is used all the time to simply refer to a dead person. So this word is used 130 times, and it was used to describe Lazarus when he was dead, Ananias and Sapphira when they were dead, the man who fell asleep while Paul the Apostle was preaching and fell out of the window when he was dead. It was used to describe John the Baptist when he was dead, Jesus when he was dead, Jesus when he rose from the dead. You get the idea. It means dead. No life, no activity, no energy at all flowing through one's body. So interestingly, when then Ephesians 2 comes along and uses this exact same word that means dead in describing our spiritual lives without grace, what do you think it means? I think it means dead. I think it means that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of any life outside of God's grace. You know, John Gerstner was one of the great preachers and scholars of this last century who passed away dead about 15 years ago. And uh, he was educated with a Ph.D. from Harvard, and he taught and preached faithfully the gospel in ever-changing times in the latter half of the 20th century. And this guy had a passion for grace. And yet one of the reasons that he had a passion for grace is because he understood what we are talking about today, this idea of our sin. And so listen to what he said at one point, an observation he once made about our culture and sin. This is very revealing. Look up here on the screen. He says, there are three basic theologies in the world. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are either sick, weak, or dead. If you are sick, you need to self-medicate. If you are weak, you can fix yourself with a little help and spiritual exercise. If you are dead, you can do nothing. You need divine intervention or grace. Interesting. Sick, weak, or dead. Those are the three options we have before us. Two of which, if they are true, then you can possibly fix yourself 
and the 20th and 21st centuries have seen numerous attempts to do that. But the third scenario, if true, requires divine help, even a divine miracle, because as we're going to see in just a second here, only God can raise a dead person. You know, taking this illustration even further, Gerstner used to argue that there were actually two competing views of salvation within the Christian church itself based upon this understanding of how dead we are. He used to say that the one view of salvation goes like this, that if you picture life as a boat and you've been thrown overboard in life and you're now in the water drowning, this view says that you went down once, then you went down twice, and at the very last moment, God throws you one of those little white lifesavers named Jesus Christ, and in a desperate attempt, you reached out to Jesus, you grabbed him, and God pulled you back into the boat and saved your life. That's one view of salvation. Kind of like God saved you in Jesus, but you had to make sure you reached out and grabbed him, and there's a nice little partnership, and that's what your salvation's about. But Gershner said the second view of salvation that's probably more to the biblical core is that you've been thrown over the uh, boat of life, and you're in the water, and you've gone down once, and you've gone down twice, and then he used to say, and you've gone down a third time, and your lungs have filled up with water, and you've sank all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And there you are in the bottom of the ocean. Your lifeless body is not pumping any blood. It's not breathing anymore. The nerves are not twitching anymore. You are dead. And Gerstner had a really gravelly voice when he would preach, and he'd say it like this. At this point, he'd say, and yet God would reach down into the depths of the ocean, and he would pull your body out, and he would place you on dry land, and he would breathe new life into you so that you're no longer dead but alive in Jesus Christ. Don't you wish I preached like that? <laughs> and I remember hearing him say that, and I wanted to jump up and say, yes, I'm alive in Christ because I was dead before. Do you see how that affects our view of grace? The Bible doesn't say that you're just hurting in your sin. It says that you're dead in your sin. And the reality is, is that when you get that, you realize how amazing His grace is. In fact, as we wrap up here, look at how Ephesians 2 will go on to say it to us. We're going to explore this more next week, but this is a great prelude to grace. Look at what it says in verses 4 through 7. It says, but God. Don't miss that. John Stott calls that a mighty adversative. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Folks, just quickly notice a few things here. First, that it says God has made us alive together in Christ. You know what most commentators point out, most Bible experts? They point out that's not hyperbole and it's not some quaint little word picture there. It literally means what it says. He has made us alive together in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 10 would say, and if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. He literally has made us alive in Christ. That's his grace. And then notice, secondly there, that it says that he's raised us up with him and seated us with him. Somebody's saying, what's that about? 
Well, it's simply a word picture, a symbol of the fact that where Christ is seated is a place of God's presence and a place of God's power. So in Christ, because of his grace, he's not only made us alive, but he's now given us his power and his presence through his grace to live life each day. And why did he do this? Because you were some really good person that you thought would be great to add to the kingdom? No, he did this to show the riches of his kindness, his grace, his glory to you and me. We're going to explore that more in the coming weeks. In other words, here's your final take-home point, and that is that grace leads us home because it leads us to a reconciled relationship with God. If you want to know what grace is all about, why it's so amazing, it's because it brings us home into relationship with God. Uh, folks, listen, one of the things I'm convinced about now, after being a Christian for 30 years, living life for 47, being a pastor for 20, is that every human heart, no one uh, fools me anymore, every human heart longs to know God. I really believe that. I, I, again, I don't, I don't care if you're Howard Stern or Billy Graham. I, I don't care if you're Richard Dawkins writing books on atheism over in England. Every human heart longs to know God. It's the longing of every human heart. St. Augustine would say it this way. He would say, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Another great saint would say it this way. He would say that there's a God-shaped vacuum inside every human being that can only be filled by God himself. And all I know is that I really believe that. And so I believe every one of you here today, every one of you, whether you are somebody who's become a Christian or not yet, whether you've been a Christian 30 years or whether you're just on your way, every one of you longs to know God in a deeper way. You long to know and experience his grace. And that's what we're going to unpack in this series. Philip Yancey calls grace the last best word. The last best word. And I think he's spot on. So here's what we're going to do as we wrap up today's service. And that is that we're going to sing a great classic old hymn. When I announced the uh, changes in our worship music a few weeks ago i had some people accuse me not to my face but i hear everything i had some people accuse me <laughs> that they knew this was coming that jamie was going to mess with the music because he doesn't like hymns that's what they're saying bill he doesn't like hymns and you know i laugh at that because i go well how could you be more wrong you just don't know me that well i actually get i get the opposite heat from my wife who loves all the contemporary stuff and she tells me you got to stop singing so many hymns when we're in the car, when we're alone, Jamie, you're, you're, you're showing your age. And I sit there and go, you know what? Pipe down, woman. I don't care. <laughs> I said, I love the hymns. I really do. And so this week, and she's not at the service, this week and next week, <laughs> my daughter is, and she's writing notes. So this week and next week, uh, we're going to close with a hymn. And, and this week we're going to close with one of my favorite hymns, and it's a favorite hymn of you guys too. It's called At the Cross. And, and, and I want you to read, I want to read the, the, the words to you right now, and, and, then I, and then we're going to stand, and I want you guys to sing this from the bottom of your heart. At the Cross. This year in March, I will have been saved. I will become a Christian 30 years ago this March. And this song means everything to me. L listen to the words. Here's the first chorus. It says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? And then the refrain, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. And then we're going to sing this. Was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond a 
at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Father God, I thank you that you have seen fit in history past to send us and give us Jesus Christ, who is grace to us because he has the power to save us. Father, I pray that each and every one of us, as we go through this journey, this study for our church, that God, you might surprise us by joy and just bring home to us in a deeper way your grace. May you soften our hearts. May you give us joy. May you draw us closer to yourself. Receive this song now. From the depths of our heart, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.